Colossians chapter 1. Maybe I can move forward here. Um, starting with verse 19, we'll just pick up with where we left off. We finished up through verse 18. Starting in verse 19. For it pleased the Father that in him all the fullness should dwell, and by him to reconcile all things to himself by him, whether things on earth or things in heaven, having made peace through the blood of his cross. And you, who once were alienated, and enemies in your mind by wicked works, he has uh, now he has reconciled in the body of his flesh through death to present you holy and blameless and above reproach in his sight. If indeed you continue in the faith, grounded and steadfast, and are not moved away from the hope of the gospel, which you heard, which was preached to every creature under heaven, which I, Paul, became a minister. Let's pray. Father, we thank you tonight for this time to worship and to open your word. We thank you for the life, the ministry, the filling of the Spirit, and the legacy of Dr. Billy Graham, the impact that he's had on uh, myself, many people here, many pastors, many evangelists. Lord, uh, we can imagine the celebration in heaven, but not just for him, anyone else that, that uh, went home to be with you now. And Lord, we thank you that death has no hold over us, but Lord, our future home is in heaven. We look forward someday, Lord, when this Bible study will be in heaven and you'll be teaching, you'll be sharing. And Lord, we won't have to go home we won't have to set our watches or anything else. Lord, we look forward to that. But tonight, uh, Lord, we just thank you for this time in your word. May you redeem the time. May you refresh us and fill us afresh and anew tonight. In this middle of the week, Lord, use it uh, as we just go back out into our workplaces and sphere of influence tomorrow and the remainder of this week. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. So verse 19, for it pleased the Father that in him all the fullness should dwell. Uh, this is a carryover from our study last week in verses 12 through 18. And remember, the title was all about him. The fullness, and you, you see this word here, this fullness is likely a very reference to the fact that there were heretical beliefs that had come into the church of Colossae. Now, I'm thankful that we don't have any heretical beliefs that I'm aware of that have come into Calvary Chapel of Richmond. We have had things before where people have brought in some wacky stuff, and I've said, <laughs> no, no, no. Uh, that, uh, that's not in the Bible, and you know, I've had people leave, and I thought, well, that's fine, but we're not teaching things that are not in Scripture. But these things had come in to the church in Colossae, adopted from pagan views that various powers, and if you, you, know, you look at the different religions of the ancient world that this God had this power, and this God had this specific power, and this one had power over the sea, and so you had these different and various powers. And again, this is a carryover from what we looked at last week, but remember, uh, Paul's made the point that in Jesus, all the powers dwell. There's not any, well, he, he doesn't have this power, but he has this. No, everything. Among any created being, among any created thing, Paul is asserting that all power, and all means all, the fullness or the collection of all powers is found and dwells completely in Jesus. Jesus doesn't need any help from anybody. He doesn't need uh, you know, some other deity. There, of course, there is no other deities other than fallen angels, and, and uh, they have no more power, as we talked about last week, 
than a spoon or a grain of sand or anything else. There's just no difference between any created being as it relates to God who is infinite. And God is found in Christ himself. Now he moves on from verse 19 into verse 20, and by him to reconcile all things to himself by him. Now three times you hear, by him to reconcile all things to himself by him. Now you can see Jesus plays a big role in himself here, right? It's by him. He'll he'll do the reconciling by himself and to himself, whether things on earth or things in heaven, having made peace through the blood of his cross, and you who are once alienated enemies in your mind by wicked work, yet now he has reconciled. Now the Greek word for this word reconcile, we see twice here. The Greek word means to change or exchange. And of course Christ has done both of those on our behalf. Wouldn't you agree? He's both changed and exchanged. Uh, He has changed us into new creations. Thankfully, if you're saved here tonight, we are not the men and women we once were. I've met people that didn't know me back in circa 1994 and beyond. And and, and it's interesting. They're like, I could never imagine you being like this. I could never imagine a curse word come out of your mouth or something like that. (laughs) You can see it on my face in old photos. You don't have to, like, hear anything. You can just see it in the body language. But Christ has permanently changed us, but he's also permanently permanently changed our relationship with God. From no relationship, that's what we had, there was a wall, there was a separation, there was a gap, to a father-child relationship. We call him our father, Jesus said when you pray. We have this father-child relationship. From a place of opposition to God, Paul says here, enemies, we were once alienated, and enemies in our mind. It's pretty strong language, isn't it? That we were once enemies of God? We don't think in those terms. We, you know, most people that aren't saved would not think of themselves. If you ask most Americans, you believe in God, they say, yeah. Are you an enemy of God? Certainly not. Me and God are tight, you know. We, I pray once a year and stuff like that. You know, we have a great relationship. What it really means is we're resistant to his nature. We are resistant to the nature of God, which makes us an enemy. Uh, he takes us from that, that resistance, to a place of love for God. An adoption of his nature through the spirit and the work of Jesus in our lives. And by the way, anything less than surrender to God is opposition to God. Anything less than surrender. Now think about that in the Marine Corps. Yeah, I, don't really, uh, I don't really oppose the sergeant, I just don't do anything he says. Try, try that for even a day, right? You'll be court-martialed. Or they might do things that fall underneath the, uh, you know, they, they, we'll handle this some way. You know, I don't know how they would handle it. It gets out of the court-martial. There might be a way to motivate, right? Apathy, unbelief, indifference, they're all forms of rebellion, right? They're all forms of rebellion. Because mo- many, most people would say, I'm not really opposed to God. I just don't care what he wants for my life. I don't care if he sent his son. I'm not even sure if I believe that, right? Those are all forms of apathy. God calls that 
opposition to him. Whether we like it or not, Paul used the term enemies. But we just have to say, all right, even if we don't fully understand the way God frames it, that's the truth. Those are the facts. But he's exchanged our opposition for a permanent place with God. Jesus said, I go to prepare a place for you. I don't care how nice your place is. He's gone to prepare a place for us. Isn't that great to know? Talk about a fixer-upper. He's, he's got everything under control there. He's gone to prepare a place. Opposition, enemies, rebellion, to all of a sudden we have a mansion with him, a place with him. Not just for a week, not just for a thousand years, but eternity. He's exchanged our sin debt with an abundance of grace, an overflow of grace, a drenching of grace. Where sin abounds, the Bible says, grace, what? Much more abounds. He's exchanged death for life, chains for freedom, hopelessness for hope. Those are, those are good trades, wouldn't you say? Good exchanges. Not all exchanges in life are equal. And this one isn't equal either because all we had to do was call upon his name by faith. This is not an equal trade. God gives everything for our simply saying, Lord, I believe, please forgive me. Paul indicates that Jesus has reconciled us, and indeed he says all things. By him, reconcile all things. This is an intensified use of the word reconcile. So you could take it'd be like putting reconcile in all caps. It's intensified use of this word. If you turn with me real quick to Romans chapter 8, turn over to Romans chapter 8. This is old school Calvary Chapel where you got to turn to another passage, you know. So some of you have been around a long Hey, I remember we used to do this. We'll bring it back every now and then. Turn over to Romans chapter 8. And Paul is speaking here of not just what God does in us, but what God's going to do in the redemption of all things, the redemption of uh, the fallen world around us, creation. Look at uh, starting, starting verse 20. For the creation was subject, subjected to futility, not willingly, but because of him who sub subdued it was ho with hope. Um, verse 21. Because the creation itself also will be delivered from the bondage of corruption into the glorious liberty of the children of God, for we know that the whole creation groans and labors with birth pangs together until now. Not only that, but we also who have the first fruits of the Spirit, even we ourselves groan within ourselves, eagerly waiting for the adoption, the redemption of the body. So when you see weeds in your yard, right, death of animals, death of humans, uh, earthquakes, all the kind of calamities, cancer, heart disease, all of these things, all of creation groans. It's not just us. The whole of creation has been cursed. But he says in verse 23, we're awaiting the adoption and redemption. You say, hold on, I thought we were already adopted. We are. We're adopted now, but there's a future fulfillment when it all comes together. So, so we see some of it today, but the full reconciliation is coming, not just for us, but God's going to make a new heaven and a new earth. Now, in God's economy, he's already been there and done it. 
because he's not bound by time. We're already seated in the heavenlies, according to Scripture. But all things, and Paul says here there's a reconciliation, a permanent change, an exchange, but Christ has not only done that or will complete that work when God's done with everything he needs to accomplish or plans to accomplish here on this earth, but he also said he's made peace. Having made peace here, verse 20, in eternity future, again, this has already happened. The victory has already been won. The payment and procurement of our eternal future has already taken place. By the way, we're on, now that I see this is up and running, we are, that's Billy, that's Tito, he'll be here Sunday, and that is our first bullet point there. There we go. So we're up to speed, we're caught up. So Paul indicates here this um, payment, it's already taken place in God's economy, in the future. Matter of fact, before Jesus came, he was slain before the foundations of the earth. He still had to walk it out, but it was as good as done if God had committed to it. The full reception is still yet to be. The full receiving, right, if you know, if you... I've looked in the mirror over the last 10, 20 years. You know that you're, you're waiting the full reception of your glorified body, right? These things are not completed yet. But the spiritual, the new birth has already taken place inside. But everything that will, every ounce of peace. You know, in heaven there won't be a moment. I, if I would ask you to raise your hand, I'm sure if I would get it, every hand would have to go up. I've said, have you had... 100% peace, never even a moment that you didn't have even a second of peace since you've been saved. I can't imagine everyone, anyone here would say, well, yeah, I, I haven't had even a single moment that I was wigging out or stressed out or... No. But in heaven, there won't even be a microsecond. It'll be 100% everlasting, perpetual peace. But yet he's already placed that peace within us. And we still have a sin nature that fights, Right? It's in conflict. But in eternity future, this has already happened. And how did Jesus do this? What were the means of his reconciliation? Because that's happened in the past, 2,000 years ago. What payment and process finished and reconciled our relationship and our future, as well as everything within the kingdom of God? Here it is. Made peace through the blood of his cross through the blood of his cross. As we looked at last Wednesday, no other form of death, it couldn't have been poisoning, it couldn't have been um, a hanging, it had to be through the shed blood just like the Passover lamb. It had to be the shed blood. Not even a beheading because that would shed blood like his cousin John, John the Baptist. John the Baptist died Say, well, wouldn't that work? There's the shedding of blood. Nope. Couldn't be that either. Jesus, prophesying of his own death, said in John 3, 14, he had to be lifted up. Lifted up, a reference to the cross. But he gets more specific. In uh, Psalm twenty two sixteen, this is prophetic, well before he ever uh, came to the earth. They pierced my hands and my feet, Psalm twenty two sixteen. Then they will look on me, 
whom they pierced, yes, they will mourn for him as one mourns for his only son. Zechariah 12.10. Romans 1.7. And every eye will see, and even them who he pierced. And of course, Jesus said to the disciples that they will crucify me on the third day. I'll rise again. He said in his earthly ministry, he would be crucified. Not hung, right? Not any other way. And that all matches up with the uh, prophecies that were given in the Old Testament. His blood and his cross. Not one or the other. His blood, the blood of his cross. Had to be the blood, had to be the cross. The two of them had to be... Had to be a blood-stained cross. That makes sense. Everything was tied together in the Father's providence. These are the things that brought reconciliation and peace, and do continue to bring reconciliation and peace to anyone that believes on His name. That's His procurement. Let's take a look at the next. Taking notes, verse twenty-two. In the body of his flesh through death to present you holy, blameless, and above reproach in his sight. Hmm. When you describe yourself, maybe your spouse, say, I am holy, I am blameless, and I am I am above reproach. Have you ever described yourself in this manner? Thanks, Paul. I, you know, this is really, um, I've never seen myself in this wonderful light to present you holy, blameless, above reproach. It's interesting that people that um, a lot of times you find people that aren't saved, they think they're really good people. And then you find people that really are saved, and they think they're wretches. Why? Because we become more aware of just how flawed we are when the Holy Spirit and the light of the Word and all of these things that God illuminates. Uh, you know, you probably sometimes now say, wow, I used to think I was a really good dude before I got saved. Now I realize just how messed up I am and was and still am in some ways. And, and yet Paul says these wonderful words, holy, blameless, and above reproach. When God looks at us, he sees the purity and perfection of Christ, doesn't he? Because he sees us presented in Christ. Jesus said, I am in you and you are in me. We've become in him. We're part of, we call the church what? The body of Christ, right? We are his visible body on earth. We are grafted into his body. So if he's perfect, when God looks at him, and because we're grafted into his body, we're in his legs and his arms and whatever heart, uh, we're moving on the earth, God sees the perfection of his own son. Now, at the same time, we're not perfect yet. We're far from perfect. We're not blameless yet. Once we've been grafted into Christ, by grace, through that childlike faith and repentance and turning to him, then God the Father sees Jesus standing in our place. Like, as if we're standing right behind him. If that kind of gives you a mental picture. God looks at us, but he sees, you know, we're almost see-through, and Jesus is right there in front of us. In fact, in us, and us in him. And his righteousness, God sees as our righteousness. 
It really is an all-new us by the likeness of Jesus and him presenting us as new and clean creations. That's what Paul's referring to here. He said, Jesus has presented you in himself. He didn't present you, hey, he didn't throw me up there. But he presented me in him, like behind him, hidden in him. Think of it like this. When we were saved, Christ first presents us to the Father as reborn, born again, born anew, John chapter 3. And then he writes our names in the Lamb's book of life. Whose book is it? His book. The Lamb's book of life. It's Jesus' book. He writes our names in the Lamb's book of life. And so uh, this is what he presents to the Father. Then he continues, this is after we've been saved, he continues to present us before the Father by the work of the Holy Spirit as we walk through life, right? Did you pray any time this week? He's presenting you each and every time you're coming before him. And not only that, he presents our case even sometimes when we don't even know how to pray for it, the Holy Spirit does it on our behalf. The Holy Spirit will say, this one needs strength. This one needs help. This one needs comfort. This one needs more faith. This one needs boldness. This one needs a renewing. This one needs a deeper prayer life. Sometimes when we don't even know what we need, which is all the time we don't know what we need. To some extent, there's something we need that we're not even aware of that God is aware of that we're not. We don't know ourselves near as well as God knows us. But he's always presenting us, and even in our flaws, he's presenting on our behalf, advocating. We have an advocate with the Father, Scriptures tell us. It's a paradox. As he presents us blameless in himself, and someday we will be in heaven, there will be a day when we'll never sin again. But that's not right now, because right now we're still needy, aren't we? So he presents us as blameless even though we're currently not blameless. That's why theology, you have to see, it's not, you can't look at theology just from what we understand. Theology is the study of God. It's what he says, not always what we can understand. No one can really certifiably convince, show you exactly how the Trinity works. Or exactly how God has no beginning. You believe those. Or those are theologically true statements. Whether they can be fully understood. We understand them at a... I at some level understand how God presents me blameless when I know for certain I'm currently not. And yet I know I am. All right. That mind bender. Let's keep moving here. A passage I've always loved in Jude one twenty four. Now to him who is able to keep you from stumbling and to present you faultless before the presence of his glory with exceeding joy. I can't present myself faultless, nor can I even give myself exceeding joy, but he can do both. We're presently kept by him and presented faultless by him, and some days we're going to see it all with our own eyes. But right now, this is a current hope. This is a current promise. This is a current realization that we see. The realization part is we know Jesus is standing in front of us, advocating for us. That we know. We know we have the hope that someday we'll never sin again in heaven. We know that's coming with a future final fulfillment. Remember, 
the church is currently in a betrothal state to Christ, but the final piece of the marriage puzzle does not come until all the church is gathered together, the consummation of the marriage, right? So there are final pieces in eternity future. They've happened, but right now Jesus already presents us as if it's already happened, which gives us a whole lot of hope to stand firm now. Amen? But it's in his righteousness that we come into the Holy of Holies. The high priest could only attend once a year. We couldn't go to the Holy of Holies if Jesus hadn't already torn the veil. But now we pass through because he's torn the veil. We come through as if we were like, you know, the priest wasn't sinless. But remember on that one day, they had to have every sin confessed, clean as can be. And if you went in there with any sin, not a good scene, right? Hebrews 4.16 says, Let us therefore come boldly to the throne of grace that we may obtain mercy and find grace to help in time of need. Well, that's all the time while we're on the earth. Although sometimes they're more urgent than others, right? But really, our entire time, we have time of need. We don't come, we don't come to God. I, don't, I doubt any of you that have walked with the Lord have done this. We don't come to God touting our righteousness when we go to pray, right? Right? Jesus had something to say about that. Lord, remember the one guy? I thank you I'm not a sinner like this guy, right? No, we come beating our breast. Even though we know we're presented fault, we still come humbly. Humbly and boldly can go hand in hand. It doesn't mean just because you can be humble and confident because we're confident God is waiting for us, but we're humble because we still have the fear of the Lord. But we don't come saying, hey, look at all my righteousness. No, we, we, we point to Jesus' righteousness in our prayer life, don't we? We're all, Lord, have mercy. Look at Jesus. Look at your son. He uses one other word here that should encourage us, particularly when we feel condemned, and there are times we'll feel condemned. He says above, or the other word you can say here is without reproach, above or without reproach. Now, one of the meanings here in the Greek is the term unaccused, unaccused. God doesn't accuse us. Once we're saved, God is not accusing us. He will convict us. He will draw us. He will chasten us. But he doesn't accuse us. We have an accuser. His name is Satan, right? He's called the accuser of the brethren. He said, you can't pray. You've failed too many times. You've had too many mistakes. You've made that exact same mistake, and he'll give you the exact number probably. But now we don't take grace for some license to just go and sin either. But we most certainly return to it. Um, we keep returning to grace, that is. We keep returning to grace with the same regularity and the same necessity as we return to our bed for sleep. We keep coming back because we're going to need grace tomorrow. We're going to need sleep tomorrow, right? And how again does Christ present us? Here it is again. In the body of his flesh through death. There's the cross again. Another way of referring back to the crucifixion. It's through his death. Again, his blood and sacrifice. Edward Mote wrote a song in 1834. You might have heard it called My Hope is Built. And he said it this way. My hope is built on nothing less than Jesus' blood and righteousness. That's it. He said everything is built on that. Moving on to our last 
uh, verse here this evening. Verse 23, his pastoring, what I mean by that? Well, Jesus is our great shepherd. He's the great shepherd of the sheep, according to Hebrews 13, 20. Jesus said, my sheep hear my voice. Every pastor in the world could die in one night and Jesus' church would still hear his voice. Why? Because he leads through his word and by his Holy Spirit. We're not that important. We have a role to play, and yet God doesn't really need us, but he does choose to use us. He's the head of the church. Look up at verse 18. Uh, we covered it last week, but just as a reminder, verse 18, and he is the head of the church. He's the head of the church. He's the pastor of his church. And all pastors, all ministers, as Paul uses the word, he said, I became a minister. All pastors, all those that minister on his behalf, all those in the New Testament priesthood, if you will, all of them, of which Paul was, Epaphras also coming from Colossae, are all called simply to echo the words and instructions of Jesus. Echo it. Just repeat it. That's what we're called to do. Repeat. That's what the Old Testament prophets were called to do. That's what the New Testament pastors, evangelists, apostles. And this is what Paul is doing here in verse 23. He's reminded the church in Colossae that Christ has already paid the bill they could never pay. He's changed and exchanged their lives from death and judgment to a reconciled relationship. I mean, some of you uh, that have prodigal kids, you look forward to when, I didn't say if, when God reconciles those relationships because we're going to believe with you. Reconciling those. We've been reconciled. We were a far way off. He's already done that. And from eternity, which would have been an eternity in hell, to now an eternity in where? Heaven. From the bondage of sin to the purity, back in verse 22, and holiness that comes through the righteousness of Christ. You, you and I couldn't make ourselves all of a sudden want holy things. That's what the Holy Spirit does. But now, this verse 23, this is a pastoral exhortation from Paul, but really from Jesus, as Jesus taught in his earthly ministry. It, it's coming from Jesus, the great shepherd, to the church through Paul. And here's what he's saying. Indeed, you continue in the faith, grounded and steadfast, and are not moved away, not moved away from the hope of the gospel, which you heard, which was preached to every creature under heaven. Paul's saying here, through Christ, and it's Jesus speaking through him, don't move an inch from the faith found in Christ. Don't move an inch. Don't move a centimeter. Don't move at all from his teaching. Don't move from what he gave and sent through the scriptures, through the prophets, through the apostles. Genesis to Revelation. Of course, some of the New Testament hadn't been completed at this point, but for us it certainly is. You've heard the saying, or maybe you haven't, if you haven't, if it's new, it's not true. And if it's true, it's not new. Spiritually speaking, I'm not talking about like a scientific discovery. I'm talking about things, if, if it's a new theology, if it's a new spiritual discovery, it's not true. If it's true, it's not new. 
Luke records for us in Acts chapter 17, verse 21, about the, the, the men in Athens there. And Athens was the seat of intellect at that time. The Athenians, he writes, and the foreigners who were there spent their time in nothing else but to either tell or hear something new. They always wanted a new facet of philosophy and religion. They were unsaved and unchanged, and the pagan philosophers and the pagan leaders, they were fascinated with anything new or what they considered better. But God in his word is holy and unchanging. Never changes. People have misappropriated it, but he, his word hasn't changed. Sadly, many times in the church over the last 2,000 years, people and leaders just slowly like drifting in the ocean have slowly gravitated to some new method or new teaching that is less Scripture or has just removed Scripture. Sometimes it's not just less Scripture. Sometimes it's just, hey, let's just not even use the Bible for the next six months. And replacing it with something that's in popular culture or some new philosophy or some adopted philosophy or some adopted cultural norm. But God has never asked humanity, nor has he asked the church, much less humanity abroad, but he's never even asked the church. Do you know he never came to the apostle? What do you guys think I should write? He never came to Paul and said, he grabbed Paul on the road to Damascus, not the other way around. Paul didn't grab God. God grabbed Paul, right? The Lord never said to the apostle, I'd really like to know what y'all think I should put in the Bible. God's never done that. He's never asked the church to help shape the scriptures. He's never asked the church to make the Bible more attractive. I think it is attractive because it's, uh, I think it's the most beautiful thing that's ever been written, but he's never asked us to make it more attractive. He's never asked us to come up with a more palatable gospel. It's hard to come up with a palatable when you know it involves crucifixion. It really makes it hard. Paul said, I'll do nothing but preach Jesus Christ and him what? Crucified. That's not really a... a sound most people want to hear, right? He's, he said it's, it's always going to be uh, one with the cross and the blood. He's never asked us to kind of modify anything. And yet again and again, a watering down of the faith has happened many times in the last 2,000 years. So there's been seasons and cycles, a mixing of truth and a compromising. How many times have you heard someone say, I've heard people literally say this, a number of times since I've been saved for the last 20-some years, you've heard people say, I know the Bible says, but. All right, you can stop yourself when you say that. And if someone says that, say, hey, time out, you've just defeated your own argument. You cannot say, I know the Bible says, but. If you had a but, then you already know you're wrong. I know the Bible says, and I will, <laughs> right? Uh, and this is a lot of times from self-proclaimed believers. I'm not saying they're not saved. People go through times where they get rebellious, even Christians do, but you can't say, I know the Bible says, but. And this was happening from the time Jesus returned to heaven, from the time he went up, sat at the right hand. Colossae was dealing with it. This is why Paul's writing much of this letter. Epaphras was saying, hey, look, we've got this stuff coming in. I didn't teach them this. I don't know where it's coming from. Men were mixing their own logic and other religions and popular values and emerging philosophies with the purity and the genuine faith that Christ had left with the apostles and in his word that was already written because Jesus quoted from the Old Testament so much. All of that was already codified in there. 
And in the second century, you guys have heard me mention Tertullian, which, by the way, if you didn't know, Tertullian, one of the early church fathers, he was African. God used him in a, uh, in a number of the early fathers in a great way to uh, really help the church stay on course. And he said, uh, I love these, because he lived in the same time period that, you know, of course, there was still much of the affinity for what was happening in Rome and in Athens and, and uh, the, you know, the great cities of Alexandria and, and, the, and the ancient world then. But uh, Tertullian said, I love this, he says, what does Athens have to do with Jerusalem? Of course, people knew what he meant by that. He goes, what does Athens, which was the seat of philosophy, have to do with where Christ, he goes, what does one have to do with the other? He said, mixing the two was like mixing cheese and chalk. Because they had to be, you know, the chalk formations were in, in certain, you know, if you, uh, certain geological formations, you get chalk. He's like, can you imagine mixing cheese and chalk? He said, what does one have? One's food and one is definitely not. He said, our knowledge of God, he insisted, comes from God's special revelation to Israel, from the teaching of Moses and the prophets, and ultimately from the incarnation being Jesus. He said, that's our revelation. He goes, we don't need what Athens has to offer or Hollywood or New York City or Washington, D.C., right? We don't need. I mean, we love them, but if they say, hey, we've got something. I know you believe in your Bible, but hey, here's what Hollywood's come up with. Try this. We can politely say, thank you. You've only been around for about 150 years or less. I don't know how long Hollywood, maybe less than that, right? Less than 100 years, right? You've been around less than 100 years. God's eternal. Sorry, we don't need it, right? But it's not just the leaders and large voices in the church back then, today. This exhortation certainly is to the church at large, but it's to each and every individual, right? It's to us as individuals. Even if a pastor or ministry leader bails and says they no longer believe what they once did, and this happens, right? We've seen leaders fall. We've seen people that say, hey, I don't even believe the faith anymore. That's not rocked my world. Because I don't follow them. How about you? I follow Jesus. Now, it's disappointing. It's sad. It, but we don't follow men. But even if someone changes their morals and they change their views of Scripture, because if they change their morals, they have to change their views of Scripture. If a pastor or leader says, well, uh, now God's okay with this personal choice. He's okay with this def new definition of God. He's okay with this new definition of marriage or a gospel that reduces Jesus Paul never said, put your faith in me or stand firm in me. No, he says here, stand firm in the faith. He never said, stand firm in Paul. In faith that's in Christ. Israel as a nation would have been greatly disappointed if their faith was in King Saul. Right? Saul went up way off the rails. Even David for a time would have greatly disappointed, right? I could never see David doing this, right? No matter what the world does, no matter what some leader does or says, no matter what becomes popular or a new interpretation of Scripture, the truth still remains true. Isn't that great? Truth doesn't move. The rock of Gibraltar is there. The sailors, the ships get tossed. But that rock stays right there, doesn't it? You're not looking. You'll run into it, right? The truth is going to be there. Every single Christian, he goes on, he says, indeed, you continue in the faith, grounded, steadfast, you're not moved from the hope of the gospel. Every single Christian is encouraged, is exhorted, is commanded. You can underline that. It's not in your Bible. That's just what's happening here. 
every single Christian is encouraged and exhorted and commanded by Christ, the head of the church, the pastor and the shepherd of our faith, to continue in the faith, as we says, verse 23, to continue, I have that word underlined, to continue in the faith, grounded, I have that word underlined, steadfast, I have that one underlined. What does that mean? It means firm or immovable. Steadfast is firm or immovable and not moved in any way. The fact that we've been reconciled and made pure and given eternal life and current and everlasting access and relationship with God, this is the hope of the gospel, that we have an everlasting home, that we've been chained. Paul, as a pastor, as a minister for Jesus, because he says at the end, of which I became a minister, he's talking about he became a minister on behalf of Jesus, an ambassador, if you will, for the Lord, which we all are. But Paul says, as a minister for Jesus, he is urging the believers, urging them, kind of like a coach would. He's urging them not to ever give up what's eternal for something that's temporal and deceptive and hopeless. He said, don't give up the eternal thing that secured your soul for, like Esau, a bowl of porridge, right? Why would you do that? Don't Stand firm. Don't go back to the things of Athens, stay at the cross in Jerusalem, in your heart, that is. He's reminding them, at all, all of them, every Christian, not just, not just the leadership there, but every Christian, not to drift, not to drift from the faith that is the only hope for every person under heaven. You know, um, I'm going to have to do a study on it one time, but, you know, I was watching the documentary, and then I went and did more research, Port Royal, you ever heard of it in the Caribbean? I mean, it got destroyed in a day. It was the most wicked city in the world in 1692. And, and people called upon the name of the Lord that day because it got wiped out in a day, just like Sodom and Gomorrah, just like Pompeii. And when, if God unleashes things, people will realize, were they holding on to sand or holding on to a rock, right? And Paul says, don't let go of what, don't move, stand firm in this. He's reminding them not to drift. The chorus, from, um, the chorus from Edward Moat's hymn, it goes like this, and you probably know it. On Christ the solid rock I stand. All other ground is sinking sand. Remember he said earlier, my hope is built on nothing less. But the chorus is, on Christ the solid rock I stand. Everything else, he says, that's what Paul's saying here, stand on these things. It was true in 1834 when that song was written. It's it was true 2,000 years ago uh, when Jesus ascended and left the church with the Holy Spirit. It's true in 2018. I don't know much compared to anything else that God knows, but I do know this. I'm glad I'm a whole new me. How about you? Because of a sinless Savior and a perfect gospel. A sinless Savior and a perfect God. There's nothing else that you can present me anywhere in the world that has a sinless Savior and a perfect gospel. Everything else you would present would be flawed. Usually severely flawed. And if we're saved, we don't have to worry about our failures, our past, our accuser, or Jesus ever casting us aside because he won't. Isn't that great? He's done and will continue to do the preserving part our part is just to keep our eyes on him and cling to the truth he's already given us. Amen? I want to close with this quote from Billy Graham, given that he went through the Lord today. 
Uh, Billy Graham said this, and this is just kind of summing up this God's made a whole new us. He said, I've never known a man who received Christ and ever regretted it. Never met a man who received Christ and ever regretted it. Because once you have the real thing and you've been changed, you wouldn't ever go back, would you? Let's pray. Father, we thank you for this time this evening. Lord, we pray that we would stand firm. You would help us to stand firm. Thank you for presenting us faultless when we know we still have faults. And Lord, we pray that we just continue to grow in your grace, cling to your truth. Uh, Lord, stay at the cross in Jerusalem, uh, seeing the deceptions of the world's Athens, if you will. And Lord, we just continue to uh, just, Lord, know these things and even more deeply believe them. In your name we pray. Amen.